we're in actually a bit of a kind of a bridge piece of Galatians. So he's bridging. The first half of what we read very much ties into everything that had been coming before it. And then the second half of what we read is pushing us into the next part. In fact, I could even go through and show you uh, in this first part uh, where he ties almost verbatim things he said all the way back into chapter 1. And so just very briefly, the verses 7 through 12, he says things like, you were running well. Who has hindered you? Uh, this persuasion is not from him who calls you, right? And as he's saying this, he's echoing what he said back in, in chapter 1, verse 6, where he is dismayed at this Galatian people. And he's saying, God has called you into something, has called you into a new way of being, and you have been persuaded otherwise, and he's saying, this persuasion is not from the one who calls you. And then he goes on, he talks about uh, the, the leaven that leavens the whole lump. Uh, and he, here he uses a good uh, like Old Testament um, kosher metaphor, right? Uh, and he's clearly intentionally weaving into there uh, some, some bits about uh, you know, Jewish history. And then he goes on and he says, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take another view and the one who is troubling you, right, troubling you. And here again is echoing back to chapter 1, this time verse 7. It's all pulling itself together. And by the way, we could weave a few, any number of strands through this. And he's saying, there are these people. And so if you haven't been you know, following the, the series here, there's, there's people who have come to the Galatians and, and they have distracted them. And they've pulled them away from the one thing, Jesus, and said, no, there is this other thing, the law, that you need to follow. And if you don't follow it to the T, well, then you are not righteous. And, and Paul's saying, actually, we are in a new time, if you remember from last week. Times have changed, right? What time is it? Well, it is the time of the new covenant. Jesus has come, and we are now ushered into his righteousness. How? Through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on and he says, if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? I had a whole sermon teed up on this alone, um, and I decided to just preach it to myself. Uh, and so uh, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. He goes on, I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves, which is Paul at his uh, angriest, we'll say. It's verse 13 and following, though, that I really want to focus our attention, because 7 through 12, it uh, focuses us backward uh, on what he has been saying, and to this point, you might end up with some confusion in mind if you were to stop the gospel here, or the, the letter here, and you were to say, that's it. And Paul does get confused sometimes as an antinomian, is the big word, that is somebody who has no laws. Uh, he's lawless completely, right? And so uh, he's accused of, of saying things like, oh, you could just do whatever you want to do. And Paul's about to lay out his understanding of how we come to a Christian ethic, how we do what we do. And this is what I want to talk about today. How do we construct a Christian ethic, according to Paul. I'll just read the passage, the conclusion of it here, and then we'll move forward. In verse 13, he continues, 
You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, this is not the whole of what he's going to teach. In fact, this is really just teeing up what's going to happen in the coming weeks. In the coming weeks, he's going to talk about living by the flesh and by the spirit. And in chapter 6, he's going to talk about what it means to have a, what he calls here in in verse 2, the law of Christ. But I want to get us started on what it means to build a biblical ethic according to how Paul reads scripture according to how Paul argues in the book of Galatians here. And I've got four four main points. Paul is not a biblicist, but he is certainly biblical. He is not a biblicist, but he is certainly biblical. And here's what I mean. If biblicism is a literalism that stifles the spirit of Scripture in favor of the letter of the law then Paul says, no way. This is uh, what Jesus condemns the Pharisees for doing when he says things like in Matthew 23, 23, O Pharisees, you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And Jesus says, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And so for Jesus, it's a both and. Yeah, you should be tithing, but the weightier matters are things like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Why have you missed the weightier matters, Jesus is saying, right? Paul would say something similar. Let us not miss the forest for the trees here. And so Paul is indeed biblical, In fact, what he goes on to say in these verses right here from chapter 5, he quotes what? He quotes from Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, love your neighbor. He's not just, this isn't just like worldly wisdom he's making up. He's not just kind of shooting from the hip. He's not even just quoting Jesus, actually, though he is. But he's not just doing that. He's quoting scripture. And so he roots what he believes and how we should behave in a biblical ethic. It is uh, in this first column of, of, of not biblicism, but biblical, it is helpful to be reminded that this is the same Paul who in 3.16 does say all scripture is breathed out by God, and it is all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. This is the same Paul who will say both, right? And so we must understand that Paul's ethic and Paul's understanding of Scripture as a whole is one that is profitable for what? Well, for teaching us and for for guiding us and for reproving one another, for telling each other, like, hey, you shouldn't be doing those things, or for correcting one another and for being trained in righteousness. The second thing that I would say about a Christian ethic is is what he says here. I'm calling it the law of love. The law of love. 
And for Jesus, and for James, and I would venture to say the whole of Scripture, it all starts and ends and proceeds with love. Love here is not just wild passion. It's not some kind of fanciful eros. It's not even a feeling. It's self-giving. It is the very nature of God himself. God is love. And so with this kind of self-giving love, all of our ethics, according to Paul, start there, they end there, and they proceed from there. One way to think about this uh, is what I've heard called one-anothering. There's any number of places in our Bible that talk about uh, doing something for one another. So we love one another here, or bear one another's burdens, or submit to one another, or encourage one another, etc., etc. And this is what it means to love, to one another, to think about the other. Someone said this to me recently, uh, and I, I've taken it to heart, and I actually quite like it. Uh, and I commend it to you, uh, especially the introverts in the room. You may not know this about me, but I am an introvert, actually. Uh, you probably know that about me, actually. Uh, so, this is hard every week to get up here in front of... No. Um, so uh, the, the advice is this. Uh, introverts, listen up. When you walk into a room, there's a temptation to think, here I am, and to wait for others to come and to kind of pull you out of yourself or your shell and instead, and this directly ties here, when one enters a room, the best thing to say is to train yourself to say, there you are, there you are, right? There you are. And to not focus on oneself or to think, oh, I, what are they thinking of me? But instead to show up for the other person, to one another together is to recognize, to be present with the people who are in the room with you and to pay attention to them and to attend to their needs or their desires and to figure out what makes them happy or what are they struggling with today and to be genuinely fascinated by the other people who are in the room with you. I have found this to be probably the best way to pull myself out of my own introversion and my own self-centeredness, frankly, and into the lives of other people. I could hear someone saying, okay, the law of love sounds great, uh, but what about things like anger, wrath, or even judgment? And if you said that, I'm glad you asked because I have a note here. You see, I actually think in the divine economy, the way God works and is and the way this world should work, I think even that flows from love. And stay with me here. You should ask yourself why a mama bear protects her cubs, right? Why? Love, right? Or if we go back to Matthew 23, the, the same place where Jesus is railing against the Pharisees time and again and again, saying, you do you've done this wrong, you've done that. And he gets to the end of it all, and do you know what he says? He looks over Jerusalem, and his heart is broken. He is deeply sad inside. 
And why? Because he loves them. And he says to them, after just being incredibly angry with them, he says to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Jesus likens himself to that hen who brings the chicks underneath the wings and says, I would have taken care of you. I wanted to. And he's doing this despite having just spent a long time berating the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Or again, Jesus turning the tables. This is the one I get all the time. Oh, but Jesus is the same guy who turned the tables. And so uh, clearly anger is okay. Now, bit on anger, in my opinion here. Uh, anger is actually a mixed emotion. Paul talks about the right? And I think this is what Jesus is doing in this place, in the table turning. You see, he goes in and he turns the tables, not because anger is a, uh, a, like a primary emotion or, or a primary um, ethic, but because something is under that that's even more important. And what is that? Why is he going in there? The text itself makes it clear. There's kind of two versions of this, and John puts it this way. After he does this, John 2.17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal or passion or love for your house will consume me. This is what John says, right? And so Jesus is passionately loving the house of God, and he's watching these people degrade it. And as he's watching this beautiful, good thing be turned to ashes, yes, anger is an appropriate response. And why? Because of love. Matthew describes it this way. Jesus said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Same thing. Jesus is looking on the house of God and he's saying this should be beautiful, this should be good, this should be right, and God loves it, and yet it is now threatened. It has been turned to a den of robbers, and so God uh, in his love is propelled like the mama bear to destroy that which is evil and to protect that which is good. And so therefore, even God's anger or God's wrath or God's judgment, it's not the baseline of God's character. It is even rooted in something more basic yet, God's love. Third thing about a Christian ethic is what I'm calling, actually Paul calls it, the law of Christ. So if there's the law of love, there's the law of Christ. I should just fess up. All of these kind of weave in and out of one another. The law of Christ is what he, Paul, this is the first time and only time in the book of Galatians that Paul uses the word law with anything that is positive. The law of Christ. It's in chapter 6, verse 2. The law of Christ. And here he connects it to bearing one another's burdens. And so he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
right? And so the law of love and the law of Christ definitely, you know, they, they weave in and out of each other. I want to add just a little bit to it. it. This is probably where we should have started, the law of Christ. And why? Because, like, this is the center of everything Paul is trying to say throughout this entire letter. The question on the table is, how are we made righteous? That is, how are we united with God once again, now and forevermore? And the answer is, not by works of the law, but through faith of and in Jesus Christ, right? That is his answer. These are the two options on the table, and he's saying Jesus. Jesus is at the center of everything. And so we start where? We should start with the law of Christ, what does this mean in practicality? The, um, the 1963 Baptist Faith and Message is not something I've quoted much, but John did this lovely study. Uh, John's giving me the thumbs up. Uh, and in it, uh, under the item, it says scriptures. Uh, this is the, the first uh, doctrine that it tackles. And it ends with this statement. And I loved it. And then I'll just fess up. It got taken out in 2000. It's something that has bothered me. But here's what it says in 1963. It says, The true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, what we're talking about today, creeds and religious opinion should be tried, the criterion by which the Bible is to be interpreted is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of how we interpret the rest of Scripture. This happens, I think, in at least two ways. The first way is living by Jesus' example. And so if we ask ourselves, what would Jesus do? As much of a cliche as it is, it's actually pretty good advice. <laughs> what would Jesus do? What would his example be in this situation? There's a few ways that this gets played out in Paul's letters and in the New Testament as a whole. And what Paul says right up front uh, in, uh, well, I guess it's in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, this is the thesis uh, for you people who, who like to have uh, you know, very clear letters that, that have, like, have a students, do you remember, or do you, write letter, do you write essays anymore where you have to put a thesis right up front? Yeah. Yeah, so Paul's got a thesis at the end of chapter 2 for the whole of the letter, right? And in it, he concludes this way. He says that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, right? And this is the goal of all humanity. You see, Christ teaches us how to be human. This is what we're doing here. He teaches us how to be human, And if we follow that example, and if we live like Christ lived, then we live according to the way in which we were designed to live in Eden and we'll be living into eternity. And you better get used to it now because it's going to be a long time that we'll be like that. I assure you it's much better than whatever you're living with right now. But he also says other things. He says things like, we are to have the mind of Christ, right? We are to be transformed in such a way that even our minds think like Christ. Or another analogy, we are the body of Christ. 
And he can say it both in the singular level and the corporate level. So the church is the body of Christ, right? We're living out Christ's example on this earth. And me, I'm the body of Christ. And so I shouldn't unite myself with things that are unholy. Or again, back to Galatians, we need to die to self and to be raised with Christ. So yes, we should live by the law of Christ, which in part means asking the question, what would Jesus do? What is Jesus' example for us? And this takes a thorough knowledge of the four Gospels that sit in the front of your New Testament. If anyone's ever asking me, you know, hey, what should I, I want to read the Bible. What should I, where should I start? Always start with the Gospels. If you don't know that, then, then you don't know how to rightly interpret the rest of Scripture, everything around it. But Jesus doesn't leave us just with an example. He has plenty of teachings, too. His teachings um, teach us how to read our Old Testament well. I'm not going to give you all that I have here. It's quite a bit. But I'll give it to you in brief. He does things like this. In Leviticus 24, it makes it clear that if anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, it shall be done to him, fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, whatever injury he has uh, given a person shall be given to him. And then we all know what happens. Jesus comes along and he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Like he literally quotes from Leviticus 24. And then he says, but I say to you, what? Turn the other cheek. Walk the second mile. Right? And he's giving us a different kind of ethic. And so when we read our law, when we read our Old Testament, we have to read it through the lens of Jesus, or we might mistakenly say to one another, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and think that we're living under a Christian ethic when we're actually not. Two, Leviticus 20 if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. It's right there, Leviticus 20, verse 10. You know where this goes, right? John 8, the story where the woman is caught in adultery. And it is asked of Jesus specifically, the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Now, let's be honest the people who are asking him this are simply, simply reading their Old Testament and saying, Jesus, what would you have us do? And we should take note and ask, well, what is a Christian ethic in this situation, right? And my guess is you're not going to say, well, we should stone the woman because, well, Jesus doesn't. But we should recognize what's happening in this passage, is that Jesus is saying the spirit of the law is pushing us in a different direction. The spirit of the law is calling us to a different kind of ethic, one that chooses grace and forgiveness, but not without bounds. Because he gets to the end of it all, and when she's standing there alone and everybody has left, 
You remember this? Jesus stands up and says to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus says, Well, then neither do I condemn you. But then he says, Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is not in the business of baptizing your sin. He's not saying, Yeah, you just live your life and do whatever you want to do. Like, that's cool with me. He's saying, I'm here to offer you grace and forgiveness, but I really desire for you to be transformed into the mind of Christ and into the body of Christ and that you in your fleshly nature die to self and to be raised again new. This is what Jesus is doing here. My last example is Jesus on the Sabbath If there's one uh, law that Jesus just snips at over and over and over again, it's the Sabbath law. It seems every miracle he can do, he does on the Sabbath. Have you noticed this? And this gets him in trouble any number of times. I'll just give you the one. Matthew 12. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, is Jesus doing away with the Sabbath? I actually think not. I think what Jesus is trying to get us to do is to recognize what is the value of the Sabbath. It's to put down our burdens for today, or for, yeah, it is today, for you all. (laughs) For me, I take mine on Saturdays mostly. I'll just be honest with you. And the reason is because I work today. But for you on the Sabbath, you should put your burdens down And you should rest for one day. And you should say to yourselves, I think God's got at least this one day out of the week where I don't have to worry about my own life. I'm going to trust that God's going to make it through. And so Jesus is not interested in the finer details of whether or not you've committed some small sin on the Sabbath. He's very much interested in you understanding the heart of the Sabbath and you being transformed into the kind of person who trusts God implicitly enough to at least give him one day of your week. My final part about the Christian ethic. Number four, a Christian ethic is led by the Spirit and teaches us to stand on our own consciences. A Christian ethic is led by the Spirit and teaches us to stand on our own consciences. Now, what does that mean? Well, Paul's going to explain this a little further in the passages that follow. He's going to set up the flesh, and he's going to set up the Spirit. And he's going to tell us that the works of the flesh are X, Y, and Z, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and then we all know those, right? Love, joy, etc., And he's going to say that if you live by the Spirit, 
well, then this is the output in your life. Jesus is saying something similar when he's trying to get at our hearts. And he's saying, what's going on in here? Because if I can change that part, then the outflow of your life should look different. The fruit that you produce in your life should look different. It should be fruit that's filled with, there it is, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, right? If you've got those things, well, then maybe God is at work in you. Maybe God is doing something in you. But how? How do we do that? I've got a few things, and they're the basics of Christianity. And it gets us one, actually. Being a biblical person. <laughs> but maybe in a way that uh, you don't always think. You see that 2 Timothy passage, 3.16 for me, it means a few things. But one thing that it means is that these words right here have God breathed them and through them. And that means that God's Spirit is here waiting for you to encounter him there. And if you come to your reading of scripture in a way that opens yourself to the possibility of meeting God on these pages, I have met God here time and time and time again, and I know that you can too. It requires slowing down. It requires reading and rereading and rereading. But I assure you, it pays dividends again and again and again. And God meets you there. And God transforms you there. And this is where you find that mind of Christ that you put on and that God does this work in you as you open yourself to the possibility of God moving through you. Eugene Peterson has a lovely book that I commend to everybody in this room. I've thought about reading it as like a I don't know, church reading at some point. is called Eat This Book. <clears throat> and it's about spiritual reading. Eat this book. And the phrase comes from the, the prophet uh, Ezekiel, uh, who is asked to eat the scroll, right? And, and, and the idea there is that we consume God's word in such a way that it begins to shape us and to mold us into What? into the person of Jesus, into the person that we were intended to be, into that Edenic kind of person and that New Jerusalem kind of person. How else can we experience this spirit? Again, back to the basics here. Prayer. Prayer and spiritual disciplines. On July 8, uh, I will not be present in the state of Virginia. I'm leaving uh, to go on vacation this week. Uh, I will enjoy my time away, but I will be with you in spirit on July 8, uh, because on July 8 at 8.30, a group of you will meet here, and you will pray. And I will be praying from Kentucky, and my hope is that as you come together and you pray together, that you find the Holy Spirit moving in this place. The last two months, 
I have experienced God moving in those prayer meetings in a powerful way. And I am certain, 100% certain, that God will show up again if you will show up. Prayer, if we are going to be a people who follow God's spirit, well, we better seek God's face. I received some good advice recently that before we seek God's hands, we seek God's face, right? And by this, they mean we're often coming to God in prayer, asking for things. God, do this for me. Do that for me. I need this. I'm anxious. I need money. I need a car. I need, you know, uh, and I'm not saying you shouldn't, but before you seek God's hands, we seek God's face, right? Other disciplines can include, but not limited to, attending worship services where the word is preached and the spirit is felt. And certainly the worship that we had leading up to the sermon was for me incredibly powerful. I couldn't help but smile throughout the whole thing because I felt God's presence in this room. Coming here, uh, gathering in God's presence is one more way to find the spirit. Who knows, maybe fasting that might be something that you try. The last thing I want to leave you with is a call to action. So we've talked about what it means uh, to create a Christian ethic, but it's a whole other thing to live by a Christian ethic, right? It's one thing to say, all right, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. I'm going to love God first. How do we do it? I do think that we start with prayer. I think we start with our disciplines. I think we start with scripture. I think we start by gathering together, but it cannot stop there. It has to be, it has to move out of this room. It has to move into your work life, into your school life. It has to move into your family lives. My challenge to you today is that we be people who live by the ethic of Christ both in what he teaches and the way he models his life. Let us pray together. Oh, Jesus, we come before you, our King, and we praise you. We praise you for showing us what it means to be fully human, for showing us what it means to love by laying down your life for the lives of others. God, we are grateful for the work that you have done in our lives, and we can never stop saying thank you. I pray that we return the favor by giving our lives back to you and living for you fully. Continue to do a work in us. May we seek your spirit, and may we follow you into the future. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.